Th thank you very much uh, for, for that kind introduction, and uh, thank you all for, uh, uh, for taking uh, time out of uh, your lives to come and hear me talk. I, I hope, hope you think it was worth it in, a, in an hour or two's time. I'm here to talk to you this evening about uh, Operation Anaconda. Uh, Operation Anaconda was, uh, uh, was an important battle fought some years ago now, so uh, it's, it's worth starting the, uh, uh, the talk just answering that question, what was Operation Anaconda? Well, it was America's first battle of the 21st century fought in the early half of March 2002. It was the largest battle fought by U.S. troops in Afghanistan up to that point. Indeed, it was the largest battle fought by U.S. troops since Operation Desert Storm. It was the highest altitude battle ever fought by American soldiers. And it was the last best opportunity to destroy much of the Al-Qaeda leadership and what might be termed Al-Qaeda's guerrilla army in that part of the world. It was an opportunity that was in part squandered. Squandered not so much by the colonels and generals and troops on the ground and in the air uh, in and over Afghanistan, but by a series of decisions taken by their bosses in the Pentagon and at U.S. Central Command in Tampa, Florida. Those decisions which I shall outline here, resulted in Operation Anaconda being fought by a bifurcated and hopelessly confused and confusing command structure sitting on top of a force uh, that was lacking much of the lethality and combat power desired and requested by its commanders. But to figure out why the United States chose to wage its largest set-piece battle in a generation under such conditions, I need to take you back to the winter of 2001 to 2002. At this stage of the war, so we're now we're talking January, February time frame in, uh, in uh, 2002, U.S. forces allied with the Northern Alliance had overthrown the Taliban government and taken over Kabul, but the senior Al-Qaeda leaders and thousands of their troops remained in the field. They had retreated to mountain lairs in eastern Afghanistan at Tora Bora, which everyone has heard of, and after Tora Bora was subjected to a ferocious aerial bombardment, the Shaikot Valley. Just to uh, orient you here, this is obviously Afghanistan, this is Kabul, here, and Torobora's around here. This is the town of Gardez here, and 10 kilometers south of Gardez is the Shaikot Valley. Bagram Air Base is up here, about uh, an hour and a half, two hours drive on fairly bad roads north of, uh, north of Kabul. This is Pakistan here, obviously Iran over here. So you've got thousands of Al-Qaeda fighters and, their, uh, and their, most of their senior leadership still concentrated in this, in this area. Curiously, however, by early 2002, senior U.S. commanders in the Pentagon and at Central Command were behaving as if the war was all but over. Now this might strike you in retrospect as odd, given that it was al-Qaeda that had declared war against the United States and had so recently killed 3,000 of its citizens uh, on 9-11. The only reason that we were fighting the Taliban at all was because they had failed to turn over al-Qaeda when that was demanded of them after September the 11th. It was as if, having been brought up in an age when seizing an enemy's capital and deposing his government equated to victory, U.S. strategists failed to grasp that such measures did not 
signify the end of the war, even the end of the war in the Afghan theater against a transnational guerrilla force like Al-Qaeda, which had no capital to seize. Indeed, one of the mistakes that US commanders and their planners made in the run-up to Operation Anaconda was to fail to distinguish sufficiently between the war against the Taliban and the war against Al-Qaeda forces in Afghanistan. These two enemies were very different. The Taliban's army was ethnically based, drawn almost exclusively from the Pashtun tribes of southern and eastern Afghanistan. The Pashtun area of Afghanistan is very roughly down here, down here, like this, and then it crosses into uh, Pakistan, and all of this area here is essentially uh, uh, sometimes known as Pashtunistan. Now, these Pashtun fighters were steeped in the traditional Afghan codes of warfare. These traditions included changing sides, surrendering en masse, or simply departing the battlefield and returning to their farms when defeat seemed inevitable. There are relatively few Custer's last stands in intra-Afghan warfare. By the time U.S. Special Forces and CIA operatives entered Afghanistan to link up with the Northern Alliance, the Taliban had already been significantly weakened as a military force by the withdrawal by Pakistan of its military intelligence troops who had provided the Taliban with much of their tactical and operational expertise. That left the Taliban as something of a paper tiger when the combination of US Special Operations Forces, CIA operatives, and the Northern Alliance Army, all enabled by the precise lethality of US and Allied air power, drove south from the Hindu Kush mountains to sweep the Taliban from the field. Al-Qaeda was different. It had thousands of men under arms in Afghanistan. Indeed, the Taliban's 55th Brigade, regarded as its best combat force, was in fact an Al-Qaeda combat organization seconded to the Taliban. Al-Qaeda's fighters, drawn from the Gulf Arab states, Central Asia, and Chechnya, were professionals. They were well-armed, and had been reasonably well-trained in Al-Qaeda's Afghan camps. They were also very highly motivated to fight Americans. There would be no mass surrenders by these men, and they had no homes to which to return. These were men willing to die for their cause. They had come to Afghanistan to learn the skills of jihad, and now the Americans had arrived on their very doorstep the prospects for jihad could not be better. When Kabul fell, these Al-Qaeda fighters withdrew to the mountain fastnesses of eastern Afghanistan. These were strongholds that they knew well, deep in the Pashtun heartland, the residents of which had provided much of the Taliban's army, had benefited from Osama bin Laden's generosity, and whose Pashtun Wali code of honor obliged them to shelter their guests. In short, destroying Al-Qaeda in this environment was always going to be a much more difficult and challenging proposition than defeating the Taliban in maneuver warfare on the plains north of Kabul. But while some US planners realized that rooting out Al-Qaeda from its mountain fortresses might require a different approach from that taken against the Taliban, U.S. commanders opted to stick with the same formula of locally recruited militia, special operations forces, and air power that had worked so well for them thus far. One problem with this approach was that the leaders of the Northern Alliance were too busy seizing the reins of power in Kabul to be bothered with the difficult, dirty job of going after al-Qaeda in the mountains. The Northern Alliance men also knew that as ethnic Tajiks and Uzbeks from north, the northern provinces of Afghanistan, they would be viewed as an invading force in the Pashtun provinces. So the Americans were forced to recruit and train up at short notice a hodgepodge of Pashtun militias for the biggest, toughest battle of the war. Now, there were other options on the table. The US military maintains at great expense 
the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault, a helicopter-borne force designed specifically to move large numbers of infantry over difficult terrain when no good road network is available. It would have been the ideal force for this fight. But other than a drastically downsized brigade of two infantry battalions and a relative handful of helicopters, it was kept back in the United States. It's, it's useful to, to, to ask why at, at this point. Well, for, for three reasons. First, as we have seen, U.S. commanders had fallen in love with the special ops, local militia, precision, air power formula and did not fully understand that it would not work as well against the Al-Qaeda forces sheltering in the mountains of eastern Afghanistan as it had against the Taliban forces on the plains north of Kabul. Second, there was an obsession at Central Command and in the Pentagon with not deploying large conventional forces to Afghanistan. Such an approach was viewed as one that would only repeat the mistakes made by the Soviets in their 1980s war there. This view seemed to discern no difference between the Soviet strategy of deploying 140,000 troops into Afghanistan to wage a scorched earth campaign whose aim was to impose an unpopular, alien, morally bankrupt form of government on an unwilling population at the point of a bayonet and a potential U.S. strategy of deploying perhaps another 10 to 15,000 troops into Afghanistan to provide the combat power necessary to destroy Al-Qaeda, who were by no means universally popular even in the Pashtun areas. Now, the third reason that the 101st was not deployed to Afghanistan was that U.S. commanders had already switched their focus to preparing for the war they knew or suspected was coming in Iraq. The 101st was needed for that war and so was not committed to Afghanistan. In its place, the Pentagon sent a downsized headquarters from the 10th Mountain Division, which at the time was the most stretched, stressed division in the Army. It already had about half of its division headquarters uh, deployed to uh, Kosovo at, at the time. But when that headquarters minus from, uh, from the 10th Mountain Division deployed to Bagram Air Brace in Afghanistan in February 2002, its planners were told that while their first mission was to destroy the Al-Qaeda forces that were gathering in the Shahikot Valley, the operation that would become Anaconda, they were only allowed to use forces already in theater to do that. U.S. leaders had imposed an extremely tight cap on forces deployed to Afghanistan for the reasons I've just outlined. They forbade the deployment of any artillery, traditionally the biggest killer on the battlefield, and only grudgingly allowed the deployment of a single company of eight Apache attack helicopters. That left commanders and staffs in Afghanistan to plan the operation with fewer forces than they would have preferred. These problems were compounded by several major miscalculations on their part. They underestimated the number of enemy fighters in the valley, believing there to be 150 to 250, when in fact there were upwards of 1,000. This is the Shaikot Valley here, just to orient you. There's three fairly small villages on the valley floor here. You've got a finger of territory that pokes up into the valley from the south. This is looking south to north. This humpbacked massif that forms the western uh, uh, edge of the valley was uh, nicknamed the whale by uh, U.S. troops because of its uh, shape. And then you've got some fairly uh, intimidating mountains here, the tallest of which, the tallest of which a mountain called Takargar, which is this one here, would later play an important role in the, uh, in the battle. So U.S. commanders thought that there were going to be about 800 civilians in these, in these villages on the valley floor. There turned out to be none. 
as I said, they thought there would be about a 150 to 250 uh, enemy fighters probably on the valley floor as well. They were probably closer to 1,000. They thought the enemy fighters would uh, be in the villages. In fact, they were in large part occupying the high ground here and uh, on the whale. dug in in those positions, in, in good defensive positions. And they thought that the enemy fighters would be armed with little more than a few heavy machine guns. In fact, the Al-Qaeda forces in the Shaikot had at their disposal an artillery battery, recoilless rifles, rockets, and numerous mortars. Most importantly, US commanders expected the enemy to either surrender or to cut and run, because that is what had happened up to this point in the war because they were mostly fighting Taliban fighters. Well, in fact, the enemy in this case stood and fought hard and well. The plan for Operation Anaconda was thus drawn up and executed by a gaggle of different task forces that Central Command had thrown together at virtually the last moment to fight the biggest battle of the war. Inevitably, frictions and suspicions arose. And the plan that emerged was the result of compromise between different task forces with competing agendas rather than the product of a single clear vision. Despite the participation in Anaconda of three battalions of highly trained US light infantry from the 101st and 10th Mountain Divisions, the main effort in the Anaconda plan was to be 300 Afghan militiamen with only a couple of weeks training by US special forces under their belts. Now, they were to drive into the Shaikot Valley from the west. They were going to come down here. There's a road from Gardez. Gardez is sort of up here. They were going to come down that road, turn off, come down here. By the way, the road was more like a dirt, rutted dirt track, which was one of the problems. Turn into an even worse rutted dirt track, coming this way. Come around here, sweep around here, and then they were going to help sort. The Afghans were going to help the Americans figure out who were the civilians and who were the Al-Qaeda fighters here. The idea was that the Al-Qaeda fighters would then surrender or try to escape to Pakistan via passes uh, out of the valley to the east and the south, down here or through these passes here. To prevent that from happening, U.S. infantry would air assault into the foot of the ridge lines along here, on helicopters, and establish blocking positions in the passes to seal those egress routes. That was the plan. What actually happened was that the Afghan column never made it to the valley. It was halted by uh, Al-Qaeda fire out here to the west. But even though that was the main effort of the attack, and the infantry at least officially, was only the supporting effort of the attack. And even though these guys were stalled and hadn't made it into the valley, the infantry air assault went ahead anyway. When the infantry landed on the valley floor, the troops found themselves in isolated pockets under heavy fire from a well-equipped enemy ensconced in the high ground. In those first hours, uh, Things looked fairly dire, especially if you were one of the infantrymen trapped down here, pinned down by, uh, by uh, plunging Al-Qaeda fire from the, from the uh, high ground. Fortunately, the US forces did have a, uh, a secret weapon at their disposal. And this secret weapon wasn't some high-tech gizmo, but it was three teams of special operators totaling 13 commandos from Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, the Air Force's 24th Special Tactics Squadron, and uh, one or two other highly classified units. Two days ahead of Operation Anaconda's D-Day, these 13 men had crept through thigh-deep snow over frozen mountain ridges to penetrate Al-Qaeda's lines of defense. That's, that's, that's what it looks like. That's what these guys were getting into. Largest enemy concentration possibly on the planet, at least in terms of Al-Qaeda. 
and their mission was to somehow get through all of the Al-Qaeda positions and get on the inside of, of the Al-Qaeda force, get into the heart of the enemy, into the enemy's lair, if you like, and do so without a single one of those teams being compromised. Now, to do that, one Delta Force team even rode in on all-terrain vehicles that had been specially rigged with infrared headlights and engines that ran super quietly. I, you know, I don't have to say it, but I will. I mean, this, this was an extraordinarily dangerous mission. Uh, if any of the teams had been compromised, Operation Anaconda would have been over before it began. But they all made it in. They did so by taking the most difficult, arduous route that they knew Al-Qaeda's fighters would be unlikely to monitor. The team on uh, ATVs even rode through a minefield. Not deliberately, I should add. <laughs> when they finally reached the high ground around the valley, one team made a momentous discovery, and this was a SEAL Team 6 team that was coming up this finger here. Right where they wanted to establish their observation post, there was an Al-Qaeda heavy machine gun post already there with a five-man team and they handily took some photographs so that I'm able to illustrate this, my speech seven years later. Um, this is one of the photographs taken by, uh, uh, taken by the SEALs uh, while they were in, uh, in their hide site uh, reporting back to their uh, uh, headquarters at Gardez, which is where these three teams had, uh, had come out of. In a, safe, a safe house, really a safe compound, safe castle in, uh, in Gardez. That's a uh, Dishka heavy machine gun there. And uh, as you can see, that's, that, that area really dominates that part of the valley. That's, uh, that's, that's the uh, Al-Qaeda team's tent there. Guys are blissfully unaware that some of America's finest are snapping photographs of them uh, at that very moment. Now that machine gun was in a position from which it could have shot down every helicopter flying into the valley. Let me show you why. Machine gun was about here. All the helicopters, each CH-47 Chinook with 40-odd infantrymen on it, was going to fly up this passage here, land here, 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 and here. So you can imagine what one heavy machine gun having to shoot into these lumbering helicopters at a range of, you know, a couple hundred meters maybe at most, what kind of damage that, that could have done. It's worth bearing in mind that every national overhead asset that the United States has had flown over that valley and missed that machine gun. If that SEAL team hadn't made it into the valley, Operation Anaconda would probably have ended in disaster before the first troops were on the ground. Instead, the SEALs, together with an Air Force AC-130 gunship, took out that position as the air assault force was in the air heading towards the valley. This is what that camp looked like after the SEALs and the Air Force were done with it. Uh, bad day at Black Rock. Mm. Now, on that first day of brutal combat, when Anaconda hung in the balance, those three teams, the only Americans to hold the high ground, I know somebody's out there thinking, except for the Air Force, but, which is a reasonable point, I'll, I'll grant. Those teams played a crucial role in calling in close air support to keep the Al-Qaeda troops at bay. In fact, those teams also played a, a critical role in preventing a humiliating American withdrawal from the battlefield. In mid-afternoon, the, uh, the, the mountain headquarters was on the verge of ordering all of its troops to prepare for a helicopter extraction from the valley. Because from the, uh, uh, from the, the sense of the battle that, that the Task Force Mountain Commander, Major General Hagenbeck, was getting, it sounded like things were just going to hell on the valley floor. Now, after listening to a radio conversation that appeared to indicate that Hagenbeck had reached a decision to pull out, Delta Force Lieutenant Colonel Pete Blaber 
who commanded the three special operations teams from a compound in Gardez, about 10 clicks north, 10 kilometers north of the valley, called his deputy. Uh, Blaber's deputy was located right by Hagenbach's side uh, in the Task Force Mountain headquarters in Bagram. Blaber told his deputy that pulling out would be a huge mistake. His three teams held much of the key terrain in the valley and were decimating the enemy with airstrikes that they were calling in. Regardless of what the conventional force commanders decided, Blaber said that his teams would stay in position at least until the next day. This was, quote, the battlefield opportunity of a lifetime, end quote, he said in his message. And he added that he intended to keep on killing the enemy until there was no more killing to be done. And that's pretty much his, his, the phrase that he used. Blaber's deputy, who was a Delta Force major, relayed that message to General Hagenbach, who then huddled with his most senior advisors before deciding that instead of pulling out all of his forces, he would merely extract those, pin down the southern, uh, southern end of the valley here by helicopter once darkness uh, closed in to give them some protection, and then would reinforce success, as was the phrase used, um, up here in the uh, northern end of the valley where uh, uh, there didn't appear to be as, uh, as much uh, enemy resistance. Having avoided catastrophe on the first day, U.S. forces on the second, third day slowly recovered from their reverses. They did so by using air power to a much greater extent than planned. The realization, the slow dawning realization on that first day, that there were in fact no civilians in the area at all, allowed Allied aircraft to plaster the whale here and to flatten the village of Marzak, which is down here where uh, there was a fairly significant concentration of Al-Qaeda fighters. But U.S. ground forces made no real attempt to maneuver to a position of advantage over the enemy forces. Then in the early hours of March 4th, another battlefield crisis arose. Blaber's small special operations force, named Advanced Force Operations, AFO, worked for a separate special operations chain of command that did not fall under General Hagenbeck and Task Force Mountain. That was a, task, a special operations task force called Task Force 11, um, and it ultimately answered to Joint Special Operations Command. Blaber's immediate boss was uh, an Air Force Special Operations Brigadier General called Greg Tabrone. Tabrone's headquarters was on Masira Island off the coast of Oman, but he himself was uh, located uh, for this fight at Task Force 11's sort of forward headquarters in, uh, in Bagram. At this stage of the fight, Trebone decided to send additional SEAL Team 6 elements straight down from Bagram and into the valley immediately. This was a decision that ignored weeks of careful preparation that the original teams had spent uh, immersing themselves in the, uh, the topography, the military history, uh, and the... the the tactics, techniques, and procedures of the local fighters in that region. Uh, you know, they had spent weeks preparing for this, uh, for this mission, and some would, uh, would say they had spent their whole careers preparing for it. The success, however, of those three teams had only whetted the appetite for Task Force 11's main force of SEALs to get in on the action. Army special operators would later say that to the folks at Bagram and at Masira Island, where the Task Force 11 um, Joint uh, Operations uh, Center was located, the success of Blaber's three teams made the battle look no more difficult than a video game. Just as simple as getting a team in on the high ground, lasing some targets, bomb bombs come in and destroy the targets, easy. Of course, that was a mistaken conclusion on the part of the operators at Bagram. 
a series of mistakes, misjudgments, and miscalculations on the part of the SEALs resulted in a SEAL team trying to insert by helicopter onto the top of Takagar Mountain to establish an observation post there. Takagar was the highest spot in the valley. Remember, this is, this is Takagar Mountain right here. It dominated the valley. So not surprisingly, the enemy had already occupied that position. Now, as the uh, Special Operations MH-47 Chinook helicopter came in to land on the top of that mountain that night, the Al-Qaeda fighters on the mountaintop took it under fire, and one of the SEALs fell out before the badly damaged helicopter could limp away. That set in motion a chain of events that ended with another helicopter being shot down on top of the mountain and a small force of rangers, aviators, and airmen fighting a no-holds-barred pitched battle on that snowy peak while the Task Force 11 headquarters tried to micromanage the fight from a desert island 1,100 miles away. The fight on Takagar Mountain was complex, confusing, and to this day still very controversial within the special operations community. I'm, uh, you know, it, it featured extraordinary heroism on the part of rangers, army aviators, SEALs, and not least, Air Force special operators, including Jason Cunningham and John Chapman, who both gave their lives in the fight. It was an extraordinarily complex fight for such a... Uh, for one that involved so few, uh, uh, so few individuals on the sharp end. Um, and it would make your brain hurt for me to sit here now and in 10 minutes try to explain all the misunderstandings and decisions and who thought who was where, when, uh, that ended up with helicopter after helicopter flying to the top of this mountain, even though every helicopter that uh, showed up at the top of the mountain got badly shot up. Uh, I, I mentioned the controversy. I'll, I'll touch on that, uh, at least one aspect of that briefly. Um, uh, Air Force Technical Sergeant John Chapman uh, was part of the SEAL force that went, that initially went back to the top of the mountain to try to rescue the guy who, uh, uh, who fell out of the helicopter, whose name was Neil Roberts. Um, uh, the SEALs uh, were able to disembark their helicopter, uh, immediately got involved in a vicious firefight um, with, uh, with the Al-Qaeda fighters. Uh, Chapman went down. Uh, SEALs uh, assessed that he was dead. They were already taking other casualties. They needed to get off the mountain quickly, and they did so. Uh, there is later came to light... Uh, some predator footage that suggests that somebody was still on top of the mountain after the SEALs left fighting the Al-Qaeda fighters. Uh, that was either uh, some kind of what would be called in the U.S. military a red-on-red -red fratricide incident, Al-Qaeda fighters fighting each other, or uh, it was uh, John Chapman fighting on alone up there. Uh, he was... Uh, or the. The, the blip on the predator screen that, uh, that was uh, fighting the Al-Qaeda fighters um, uh, was eventually killed by one of them after killing another with an expert rifle shot. John Chapman's body was found right where that blip uh, showed up. That, that's become a very controversial episode inside the U.S. special operations community for reasons I'm, I'm sure you can understand. And it's worth, it's worth pointing out that the SEALs are absolutely adamant that Chapman was dead when they, when they left the, uh, the top of the mountain. I, uh, you know, I would be, uh, it would be remiss of me not to mention at this point that there's a fantastic exhibit on the Takagar fight here. And so uh, if, you, if you want to get more of a sense of it and hear some of the, uh, the voices of those, uh, of the airmen who fought on top of it, you, you can do that. I would heartily recommend you do that. Now, the combat on Takagar lasted all day. Once darkness fell, a Helleborn rescue force pulled the survivors and the fallen off the mountain. That was the last major ground combat of Operation Anaconda. Nevertheless, 
the, the operation officially dragged on for another two weeks, in part because of a desire to bring another Afghan force into the valley to claim the victory. The original Afghan force had decided they didn't want any part of this after the, uh, after the first night. Um, that, that's, that's not entirely true. They did show, they did show up again, but uh, there was you know, higher level political maneuvering to get more of an official uh, you know, provisional Afghan national army force down with tanks, and so uh, that took a week or two of haggling to, uh, to arrange. For the loss of eight men, seven of whom died in the fight on Takagar, U.S. and Allied forces probably killed 200 to 300 enemy fighters using a combination of small arms, machine guns, mortars, and especially airstrikes. But Anaconda could not be called anything like a complete success. The aim of the operation, spelled out in uh, General Hagenbeck's mission statement, was to destroy the Al-Qaeda forces in the Shaikot Valley. Destroy them. But hundreds of Al-Qaeda fighters slipped away and are now in Pakistan protecting Osama bin Laden and fomenting trouble on both sides of the Afghan-Pakistan border. Nevertheless, Operation Anaconda could have been a lot worse as well, were it not for the daring and the skill displayed by the troops on the ground and in the air. So what lessons can we learn, or in most cases, relearn from Anaconda? That's the first. Know your enemy. Now, this seems like conventional wisdom, I know. And uh, when I give uh, variations on this talk at uh, military staff colleges, this slide shows up and there's a whole bunch of eyes rolling to the back of their heads. And, you know, I see it uh, from guys. I can almost hear them as one. Uh, I see a big speech bubble forming over their heads. You know, we're sophisticated, you know, majors and lieutenant colonels. We don't have to be told this. This is, a, this is a military cliche. This is conventional wisdom. Well, it is. That's, that's true, all except for the point about maybe they need to be reminded of it. Um, uh, you know, because like a lot of conventional wisdom, it is grounded in truths to which many military commanders and their staffs paid lip service, but little else in Anaconda. And I suspect some more recent operations. It's important to know your enemy in the strategic sense. Are you fighting Taliban or are you fighting Al-Qaeda? And what are the differences between the two? And in the operational and tactical senses, how is the enemy dispositioned? What are his principal weapon systems? How many fighters can he call upon? What is his most likely course of action? In their planning for Operation Anaconda, U.S. forces got the answers to all of these questions completely wrong. Know your friends. The cobbled together Pashtun militia force that was to be the main effort for Anaconda was nowhere near as capable as even the Northern Alliance, let alone a Western military force. Yet the Anaconda plan required that column tra to travel down a terrible dirt track in non-tactical vehicles in the dead of night and then to function like a U.S. force in terms of synchronization, phase lines, and so on. The special forces officers who were uh, in charge of advising uh, uh, that Afghan force would later say that and acknowledge that this had been a major mistake. Think twice before you plug and play. Plug and play uh, in, the, in the early uh, years of this, of this decade became the catchphrase to describe the perceived advantages of the U.S. Army's uh, switch to modular formations. Uh, that transformation, modular brigade size formations. Now that transformation to a brigade-based force has much to recommend it, but there are big risks in any organizational design that assumes that units can be pulled out of one organization with whom they train day in and day out and have established the bonds of trust and confidence and understanding so crucial in combat and then 
get plugged into another organization without any detriment in effectiveness. It is vital to always bear in mind that at its heart, warfare is a human endeavor. The eye in the sky is not all-seeing. Now, I've already explained how every national asset at the United States' disposal, from the CIA's MI-17 helicopters to Predator UAVs, spy planes, and satellites, missed that machine gun on the finger. But there were other examples of US troops' over-reliance on overhead sensors. None more so than when the SEALs decided to fly straight to the top of Takargar Mountain, in part because an AC-130 gunship had cleared it by flying over the mountain and reporting erroneously that there were no enemy there. Just because you can't see what you're looking for in a photograph or on a video screen, that doesn't mean it's not down there on the ground. High tech is not all that. Now, I realize that I'm taking my life in my hands, <laughs> briefing a slide like that at uh, the headquarters of uh, uh, the Air Force's uh, Materiel Command. Um, but hear me out be before you string me up. Again and again in Operation Anaconda, high-tech systems failed at crucial times. Uh, one example included the navigation system on uh, the same AC-130 that uh, did so well destroying the, uh, uh, the machine gun nest that the SEALs had, uh, had discovered. Um, uh, its its uh, navigation system then failed and tr with tragic consequences uh, as uh, the gunship um, mistook a small special forces and Afghan uh, element uh, that was arriving west of the whale and setting up a little offset blocking position uh, as, as an enemy force because it thought it was on a completely different, it thought it was looking at a completely different grid square on the battlefield um, because its, its navigation system had failed. And uh, after m clearing this fire mission multiple times through multiple chains, uh, and of course, all the, the, uh, each time it it, it said, is it okay to fire this? Everybody said yes, because they knew there were no friendly forces at the grid reference that was being given by the, uh, by the aircraft. Uh, they, they opened fire, and uh, they killed uh, one uh, special forces warrant officer and a couple of uh, Afghan allies. Another, uh, another uh, failure of uh, high technology that, that had uh, tragic consequences was the the failure of the satellite radios on the uh, Special Ops MH-47 helicopters uh, involved in the Takagar battle. You know, that, that was a failure uh, that forced some of America's finest warriors to fly blind into a buzzsaw. Jointness has its limits. There's, there's a certain whiff of, of political correctness about the military's commitment to jointness. Again, like plug and play, you know, I mean, jointness is, 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 is a good thing to do normally. I'm, this is not me preaching for, uh, you know, stovepiped uh, commands and so forth and so on. But, but just like the plug and play principle that I uh, referred to a couple of uh, minutes ago, when pushed to extremes, uh, this principle has a reducto ad absurdum quality about it. Most notably in Anaconda, as I mentioned, Task Force 11 was commanded by an Air Force One Star, uh, an officer who was a very accomplished pilot, but who lacked the background and training to command and control complex, high-risk special operations missions on the ground. At a critical moment in the, in the Takagar fight, when disaster could still have been averted, uh, General Trabone took command and control away from Pete Blaber, who was by this point down in the valley, and gave it to his headquarters on that desert island off of Oman, a decision that, that would only exacerbate the confusion that swirled around the top of that mountain. Another example of jointness run amok was uh, Task Force 11's decision to give so many of the uh, special reconnaissance missions 
two Navy SEALs who are, you know, extraordinary warriors, but particularly at that point in, uh, uh, in the war against Al-Qaeda, just didn't have the same depth of background in those areas that uh, some Army Special Operators did. Patton's three principles of war. Pete Blaber, the, uh, the AFO commander, the Delta Force Lieutenant Colonel, lived and preached what he called Patton's three principles of war. Audacity, audacity, and audacity. Now, I have to tell you, I, I, I don't know where Colonel Blaber got that from, but I spent, you know, not weeks, but certainly hours uh, looking for Patton's three principles of war and couldn't find them anywhere. But, 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 they're, but they're great principles to have, uh, despite that. Now, Colonel Blaber had to buck his chain of command just to make those recon missions happen. But without them, Operation Anaconda might well have been a strategic defeat for the United States. Imagine if at that point in, in, uh, in uh, the war against Al-Qaeda, if uh, you'd had the, uh, finally the big battle against Al-Qaeda, and the first thing that happens is, uh, you know, two Chinooks full of, uh, you know, 75 or 80 uh, American troops crash burning to the ground. The Al-Qaeda guys come out with their video cameras, and, you know, a week later it's on YouTube or whatever YouTube was called back then. Always trust the guy on the ground. Pete Labor followed this rule. When his, uh, when his uh, SEAL element discovered that, uh, uh, that machine gun nest and they radioed back for uh, guidance, he, he basically told them, you do what you think is right, attack when you think is the right time. They, they went ahead and, and did that. Um, General Hagenbach, uh, you know, also, uh, uh, also trusted the guy on the ground. He was about to pull all of his troops out of, uh, uh, out of the Shaikot, and then Blaber, a guy who technically wasn't even in his chain of command, uh, radioed back and said, think that would be a bad idea? No, I think this is the battlefield opportunity of a lifetime. There's a lot more killing to be done. Things are not as bad as they seem to you right now. And, uh, and Hagenbeck said, you know what? This guy's very experienced. He's, he's closer to the action than I am. I'm, I'm going to trust his judgment. General Trebonin, unfortunately, did not. He took command and control of the fight away from, uh, away from Pete Blaber, uh, uh, just as the Takagar fight was about to uh, disintegrate uh, or about to uh, sort of spiral down into, uh, into disintegration. That was a decision he would later come to regret. As, that's my understanding. And, uh, and he decided not to send a rescue force in under daylight to pull the Ranger Quick Reaction Force, which included uh, uh, some of those uh, brave airmen I was talking about, uh, off the top of Takagar despite insistence from both the ranger company commander, a big pardon, platoon leader, uh, who was in charge on that mountaintop, uh, and the insistence from one of Blaber's uh, three uh, uh, reconnaissance teams that had eyes directly on the mountaintop, uh, uh, that the landing zone was now secure. Trebone was understandably still uh, very concerned by the fact that every helicopter he had flown up there so far had you know, had the uh, uh, gut shot out of it. So he didn't trust the guy on the ground. And it, unfortunately, I, there, there are certainly uh, those who were on that mountaintop who, uh, who feel that uh, that decision cost the life of, uh, of an airman who... Uh, pressing the wrong buttons here. That uh, uh, cost the life of an airman who, uh, who tragically bled to death in the snow waiting, uh, while they were waiting to be rescued. Now, I've, I, should, I should say here that, you know, it sounds like I'm being a little hard on, on, uh, on Trebone. Uh, what I'm really trying to be hard on is, is if anything, is, is the system that set him up for failure. Uh, he did the best he could. The, there's nobody in Operation Anaconda 
uh, who, uh, on the American side, on the Allied side, who wasn't doing the absolute best that he thought he could do every moment of the fight, making uh, you know, the best decisions he could, very often uh, in a sleep-deprived state, with absolutely crushing life and death pressures, knowing that if you make this decision, a lot of people might die, and if you make this decision, somebody is certainly going to die. I mean, you know, I wouldn't wish that sort of, uh, uh, that, that sort of a dilemma on, on, on anybody. Uh, Jabon did the best he could. Uh, he probably shouldn't, should never have been put in, the, in that position uh, without, without, you know, a uh, better background to prepare him for it. Combat-focused training saves lives. Again, this is more conventional wisdom. Oh, yeah, train the way you fight. How many times have we heard that? I see, I see that in the, in the professional military audiences that I, that I lecture. But it's amazing how many commanders in garrison, uh, particularly at this stage of, uh, of uh, uh, our m recent military history, did not seem to make combat training their focus. Now, again and again, when the chips were down in Operation Anaconda, training took over for troops in what would otherwise have been very dire straits indeed. Final lesson learned. Troops won't let you down. If you think back to 2000, 2001 time frame, there was a lot of hand-wringing back then. This is sort of pre-9-11 that the generation that fought World War II was finally passing from the stage, the, the greatest generation, as, as they became termed. Implicit in much of that conversation was the notion that today's generation of young Americans weren't fit to lace the boots of their forefathers. Well, I, I would respectfully argue that nothing could be further from the truth. And I, and I would say that this was clear even during Operation Anaconda, not to mention the, uh, uh, the seven years of fighting we've had since then. In Anaconda, in circumstances that would have broken weaker soldiers and weaker units, U.S. troops from light infantry to SEALs to Delta Force operators to Apache pilots to special ops airmen, all proved themselves in extraordinarily difficult situations that were largely not of their making. So in closing, I would remind you that every day there are soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan performing with similar quiet heroism. Today's generation of young Americans is living up to the high standards set by their forebears. They have earned our pride and they deserve the best tactical, operational, and strategic leadership we can give them. I thank you all for your time and your patience, and I look forward to your questions.